if you look at somebody like Jim Bridger, you know, Jim Bridger came west when he was 18 years old to be a fur trapper in 1823. And by the end of the fur trade era, he owned part of one of the big fur trading companies. But then the fur trading industry died sure. virtually overnight. And we think today sometimes that the turmoil in the economy and that the rise and fall of industries is a modern phenomenon, but, but it's been going on forever. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. All of us here at A New Angle hope that your 2020 is off to a great start. Today's episode is a fitting follow-up to last week's conversation on the future of work with Scott Latham. You know, we talk a lot here at the University of Montana about creating tomorrow-proof students. And today, we bring you a shining example of a tomorrow-proof person, Michael Punk. Michael's had an incredibly diverse set of career experiences. Private law practice, a trade policy position in the Clinton administration, an ambassadorship to the WTO under President Obama, and now a corporate role with Amazon as vice president of global public policy for AWS. Oh, and how could I forget the thing for which Michael is perhaps most well-known, writing The Revenant, among several other great books and screenplays. In this conversation, we talk about how all of those roles and experiences weave together to shape Michael's view of the future of work and his view of the future of higher education. AWS is partnering with the University of Montana and Missoula College on some interesting initiatives to clarify our curriculum and make us more agile. It's disruptive stuff, and I encourage you to think about what you hear from Michael in the context of what we learned from Scott Latham last week. This is what disruption feels like, folks, so buckle up. Here we go with Michael Punk right now. Okay, so we're here today with Michael Punk. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. I'm excited to talk. You're probably the most interesting man in Missoula, I, <laughs> I would have to say. Wow, that's... that's uh... Now I'm now I'm nervous. Well, yeah, that, that set the bar really <laughs> high. But, I mean, I just got to wonder, like... What do you do to support this habit of yours of writing books that end up as Oscar-winning films? <laughs> uh, well, the writing piece is a long story in and of itself. Yeah. And kind of the integration of writing into other aspects and phases of my career is, is a long story, too. But I guess the short version of it is that I have always really loved writing. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of that is that I've always been interested in a lot of different things. So for me, I sort of fell into, or not, I didn't fall into it. I was, I was interested in a policy career, and I've right. had a career on the one hand that, uh, that started with law school and led me to work in Washington, D.C. and go overseas mm-hmm. for, as you know, uh, ambassador capacity and, and now to work in a policy job. But I've always also loved Western American history. It's just been a passion of mine since I was literally a little boy. Growing up in Wyoming, in, I mean, that's yeah. a rich Born and raised in, in Wyoming in. and uh, did a, a lot of typical, uh, you know, Wyoming, Rocky Mountain sure. type things growing up and fell in love with Western history. And as I said, one, one of the jobs I had growing up that was most impactful to me in a lot of ways is I, I worked as a living history reenactor at Fort Laramie National oh, Historic Site. Okay. So when I was in between the ages of like 17 and 20, my summer job was dressing up in an 1876 cavalry uniform, Sure. going out to Fort Laramie, 
you know, marching around, doing flag retreats, firing cannons, baking bread in a wood-burning oven, and learning about Western uh, history and then also talking to tourists along the way. So, you know, that's always been uh, very much in my blood. And so I've never really, I guess, been willing to, to leave anything behind, either mm-hmm. in terms of the interest on the policy side or the interest on the Western history side. And so along the way, I found ways to, to do both. Sure. So you started you know, from Wyoming. You decided to go to college out east, UMass Amherst, and then eventually to GW, right? I, I had a weird undergraduate career. I started off at the University of Massachusetts in, in Amherst, as you said, and then the second semester of my, of my freshman year, I actually went overseas and studied in France for... That's, that's pretty early for It was. It was more career, of yeah. a, you know, typically people do a junior year right. abroad. I sort of did a junior year abroad, but for half of my freshman and all of my sophomore year. And then at the end of being overseas, uh, I wanted a broader international affairs uh, program, and so I transferred to, to GW Okay, and uh, uh, finished my undergraduate degree there. I had a chance to intern on Capitol Hill with Senator Alan Simpson. Being, okay. from, being from Wyoming, Alan was my, uh, was my senator. Uh-huh. So I got some exposure to, to policy through that mechanism as well. Then I went to law school and, uh, and on from there. And so out of law school, is that when you hooked up with Max Bacchus and was a staffer in his office? Uh, fairly soon after law school. I worked okay. in a, a law firm first for okay. about a year and a half in Washington, D.C., and then I had the opportunity to go work for Max and uh, worked, for, worked for Max for uh, uh, not quite two years before going into the, uh, into the Clinton administration. Sure. Did you know during law school, I mean, you studied trade law. Did, did you know in law school that you wanted to go into public service, or were you, very you much so. you made a stint in, in private practice? Yeah, uh, even in I never wanted to be a traditional lawyer. Okay, and for me, it was a choice between law school and grad school, and uh, I didn't want to take the time to go get like a doctorate. Okay, and a master's, uh, a JD was one year more than a master's degree, so it seemed like kind of a good balance point. Yeah, but I always knew that I wanted to use the JD to to work in a policy sphere, either in government or uh, in private practice, but but with a policy angle. And so I I, I found first year of law school very hard because obviously you take a lot of mandatory courses mm-hmm. that are designed to be most relevant to somebody who's going to be a real lawyer. And I was never going to be a real lawyer. So <laughs> I, I knew that early on. I don't even know what a real lawyer is. I'm not I mean, sure anymore about either. Like but Perry like, yeah, courtroom, <laughs> you know, writing contracts, things sure, like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was not, that was not going to be me. I'm sort of reading between the lines of your logic there and thinking about my own experience. I mean, I certainly do a lot of things here, but a PhD is a fairly uh, – its its utility is narrow, let's put it that way. You learn more and more about less and less. Yeah. Yet a law, a law degree – I mean, you can do a lot of things with a law degree. I have found I, – I did not particularly enjoy law school, okay. but I've always been very glad to have a JD because it, it kind of uh, – it is – especially depending on how you shape your legal education, can be a very flexible degree. Mm -hmm. And once you get through first year, you have a lot of flexibility in terms of the courses you take. I took a lot of international law type of courses, international uh, policy, comparative courses that that were helpful to me in one way or the other. And so it was – I found the JD to be a pretty useful degree. So you work for Max, and then you end up in the Clinton White House. And you're – I mean – 
you're pretty big seats there. National Economic Council, National Security Council. How do you end up in these kind of high-profile positions at such so, a young age? Well, I did it through being uh, a trade, international trade person. Okay. So even in law school, as I mentioned, I studied international trade because to me that was one of the most interesting aspects of, of international law was international trade. Mm-hmm. And when I went to work uh, for the law firm even, I was lucky enough to have a law firm job where a lot of the focus was on international trade issues. That was my focus when I first went to work for, for Senator Baucus. And, you know, once you're in the mix of it on in Washington, once you get that kind of first job where you're kind of on the, the front line of an issue, uh-huh. it makes it a lot easier to get to be in the mix for, for other jobs like that. Sure, you're in the consideration set. You're, yeah. yeah, you're in a relatively small universe of people who are obsessed with that issue. And mm-hmm. that was the case for me working for Max on Trade uh, when the Clinton administration, when Clinton was elected in, uh, into office. Uh, I knew people who uh, were f- helping to fill out those staff-level kind of positions sure. on international trade. And because I'd been working on the exact same issues on Capitol Hill, I had good knowledge of what had been happening for the last two years, and that was something that they wanted. So I was in a good place at a good time. And how does that work? I mean, I've interviewed a variety of people that have worked in in D.C. in various capacities, and you're sort of looking at their career, and you see this alternation of, of... White House stints by party affiliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very few people tend to sort of work across different presidencies. If that makes sense. Well, there's I think there's two sets of government workers. There are career government sure. people, and that actually is a, a big part of the government, mm-hmm. uh, especially in uh, it's a big portion of agencies like the State Department or the Commerce Department or the Department of Defense or the CIA. You have, you have career people that are really, I think, the backbone of the government because they have this long expertise that, uh, that carries across administrations. And when, uh, in, in the best-case scenario, when a new administration comes in, they are able to take advantage of this expertise that is, that is sitting there. That said, obviously, when an, an administration changes, there's a new group of, of political appointees sure. that come in. Yep. And I've always been on the—I was never a career— government person. I always came in effectively as a, as a political person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my experience was, uh, that's a, it's a good mix because I think uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. Uh, obviously, we want our, our uh, political uh, process to, to, uh, to run the country. Uh, and, but it's, an, it's nice to have that mix of, of new blood that comes with new administrations and existing expertise uh, that can help, uh, you know, you can rely up upon sure. uh, a career's worth of work. Yeah. So you, what goes on for you during the, during the George W. Bush administration? You go back into private so law at that point? I went back into, into private practice. Okay. Uh, and I actually had ended up in the Clinton administration working for a guy named Mickey Cantor, who was the U.S. Trade Representative and then the Secretary of Commerce in, mm-hmm. the, in the Clinton administration. Uh, when the Clinton administration was over, he went into private practice to work at a, a private law firm, uh, Mayor Brown, and I followed him into that firm and practiced law with him there for 
ended up being a partner at Mayor Brown, was there for about, uh, I guess, not quite five years. Okay. Uh, I love Mickey. I love the people I work with. I hated being a lawyer in a law firm. Um, we can kind of, kind of see that coming from what you said yeah. before. And so this was kind of my Shawshank redemption moment, okay. I think of it, where yeah. uh, while I was toiling away at the law firm, I was chipping away at the, at the wall. Yep. And for me, that meant writing The Revenant. Okay. And my my hope was that if I could write a book that it would give me the flexibility to live wherever I wanted to live and where I wanted to live was was back in the West. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in, in Wyoming. I married a girl from Montana. Uh, my wife's from Livingston. She and I met working for Senator Baucus in, okay. in Max's office. And we began plotting how we were going to move away from D.C. and uh, – whether we were going to go move to Wyoming or Montana. And uh, uh, in, also because I was working for Max, I had a chance to spend a lot more time in Montana sure. and not very far from where I grew up to begin with. And, and so not surprisingly, uh, love the state. And ultimately we decided that we would, after I published The Revenant, we decided that we would uh, take the opportunity to try something completely new. And we would, I resigned my partnership at the law firm and moved to Missoula to write books. That's so interesting to be writing a book like The Revenant, you know, sort of a historical fiction account, but set in the zone that you're trying to write your ticket to get back to. It, it was very much uh, a escape from jail plot yeah. for me because I, I was on a perfectly uh, acceptable career track if, on paper. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a partner in a law firm and, and uh, you know, I, I made a good living. But I hated it, and I did not want to – there's a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who love working in government, and I really have always enjoyed the, the work that I've done in government, but I did not enjoy the work that I did in the private sector in sure. Washington, D.C. And I knew that I was not going to just be one of those people who sat around waiting and hoping for you know the right person to get elected president someday so you'd have another chance, and I, I wanted a little bit more control of my destiny than that. And, you know, uh, one way or the other, it's, it sort of worked out. I, I, we, we moved out here in 2003, uh-huh. and I started writing books full-time uh, during the, that period. Uh, also learned how to write screenplays to try and diversify my writing opportunities some. Of course. Um, and, you know, it, it, it worked. Uh, it it, making a living as a as a writer is a, a dicey thing sometimes. Certainly, and there certainly were plenty of of nights where I was worried about you know selling the next book or whatever it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But it also allowed us to 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 break away from right. a career path that I knew was not the one that I wanted to be on. Yet, you got the call. To go back to Washington well, shortly thereafter. Actually, not to go back to Washington. Oh, uh, okay. To go to overseas. Go international. Correct. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and interestingly, I did. I wasn't interested at all in going back to Washington during the Obama administration, and had done nothing whatsoever to kind of tee myself up to compete for a job back in Washington D.C. But uh, was sitting in my office in Missoula, Montana. In I don't know. Uh, the the February after the uh, Obama administration came into into office and got a call from my brother who uh, works in Washington D.C. or okay. did, it, did it at the time 
And he told me that the job of U.S. ambassador to the WTO in Geneva was going to be open. There had been a career person in that job who had announced that he was going to leave. And that job interested me a lot because it wasn't going to be in Washington. It was going to be an overseas position. Geneva seems pretty attractive. Geneva's, and then in that field, you have such rich experience and training. Right. And, you know, I think while my wife and I uh, wanted very much to have our home be in Montana and raise our kids here, we also wanted the opportunity, not just for us, but also for our kids, to, to experience uh, other cultures as well. And so... Uh, that's what we ended up doing. We kept our home in Missoula while we went overseas, but we had an opportunity for for uh, both me in terms of a, a really fun and interesting uh, uh, job, but also for my my family to experience a different culture, which was a, a, a fun thing for everybody and a, an important thing for everybody. And just for, well, the sake of the listener, like, what is the representative or the ambassador to the WTO do? Like, what is the job? So the job is, and one of the reasons I loved it so much, is uh, the ambassador part of being ambassador is interesting in terms of uh, of representing your country, at, uh, you know, going to, to meetings and representing the position of the United States. Um, there's kind of a diplomatic aspect, obviously, of being sure. an ambassador yeah, by yeah, definition. formality. But what I loved about the particular job that I had, U.S. Ambassador to the WTO, is that I was the lead negotiator for a bunch of different trade negotiations. And I really love negotiating. Okay. And uh, the work and strategy that goes into uh, a negotiation to me is, is fascinating. And so on top of the kind of normal ambassadorial diplomatic stuff, yeah. Yeah. which is interesting and fun, was something that to me was really fun, which was negotiating. Can we talk about that sure. for a little bit? Because right now, you know, we're in the midst of this, I guess we're in a trade war with China. Yeah, we are you in a describe trade war. It. No, and, absolutely. You know, that whole framing is interesting. Trade war, you learn mm-hmm. about it in history class. And it, it just seems like these negotiations as a construct are just thought of as adversarial in nature and zero sum and all of that. And what's what's been your approach to the, the process of negotiation? Well, I mean, I think negotiations often are adversarial. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they have to be zero sum. Okay. And that's maybe an important distinction. And right. I think that's particularly the case with trade negotiations. And, you know, one thing about trade negotiations is it, it is a negotiation. You're, uh, you are, uh, at the end of the day, trying to come to some agreement that both sides will accept willingly. And that doesn't mean you don't deploy all sorts of leverage to to get to that end, but uh, but it's it's you, when you're negotiating with uh, with powerful adversaries, uh, they have leverage too, mm-hmm. and uh, figuring out a way of navigating that really complex environment is the the challenge of negotiating, and to me, what's what's most interesting about it. So, for example, uh, you know. Uh, we did. We concluded a couple of of trade agreements when I was in Geneva that I'm really proud of. The first one is is called the Trade Facilitation Agreement. Okay. And it was the the first time in the 20 year history of the World Trade Organization that the uh, that the countries of the WTO came together 
and concluded a fully uh, multilateral deal, meaning every single member of the organization signed on to that deal. Okay. And what it did, which trade facilitation sounds boring and parts of it are, but what that agreement really did is it cut red tape and made it easier, especially for small companies, to be able to export their products around the world. And so it was a it was an agreement that was uh, widely praised by American business people, and uh, none more so than small businesses who see that there's a global market out there, but oftentimes, uh, because they're small, have trouble navigating the bureaucracy. And the trade facilitation agreement took away a lot of that bureaucracy in sure. a way that really helped them. So that was, a, you can imagine, uh, with 160 countries negotiating. I can't even imagine. Uh, it's, it was an incredibly complex uh, effort, but it ended up very successfully. The second agreement that I'm proud of that we did in that in that time that I was over there was uh, something called the Information Technology Agreement, the ITA. And in the ITA, China, for the first time in 20 years, uh, reduced its tariffs on a set of products that it very much did not want to reduce its tariffs on, Okay, namely in information technology products, which, of course, are among the products that the U.S., is most competitive at exporting. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a trade agreement that ended up covering about a trillion dollars. It's trillion with a T worth of, of global uh, trading opportunities. And we did that uh, very much with China kicking and screaming. Uh, and we were able to organize a coalition of, of countries that together uh, leveraged China into into doing something it very much did not want to do. Yeah, so, so they want they're giving something up. What are they gaining? Like, what was inclusion in that trade deal do for them? So they uh, they also export technology okay. goods, and some of the countries uh, were opening up opportunities mm-hmm. that they thought would be uh, opportunities for for their exporters as well. Ironically, the U.S. market in that area was already open. So we weren't giving up very much at all because uh, the U.S. tends to have lower trade tariffs than right. just about everybody else, at least as a starting point. And so it was a situation where we gave up uh, very little to gain an awful lot, uh, including in the China market. Gosh, I'm thinking about these tariffs as revenue streams. Like, what are they significant revenue streams for nations? Or are they more just so defensive kind of or competitive measures? They are both depending on the country. Right. And, you know, the U.S. over, uh, over time has moved away from tariffs as a, as a major uh-huh. uh, revenue stream. Um, but some countries uh, still rely on them as revenue streams, uh, especially a lot of developing countries. Uh, a country like India, for example, has extremely high tariffs and still uh, look at that as a, as a, a you know, source of, of, of revenue they want to sure. acquire. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hate that we call them tariffs because it makes people think they're somehow different. What I mean, it's their taxes. They're, right, they're right. trade taxes. Fancy word for tax. Fancy words for tax. And, uh, you know, the U.S. over the years has reduced its trade taxes largely because we've decided that we don't want to have high taxes mm-hmm. uh, and largely because we think that uh, having high taxes is bad. And so uh, we tend to lose that sometimes in the in the tariff discussion. And when somebody talks about uh, raising tariffs uh, in the United States, uh, you know, substitute the word tax 
and that becomes suddenly not so popular anymore. You can see why the word gets used in some contexts. You can, I suppose. Uh, but it's yeah. very misleading because uh, uh, you know tariffs are paid by American consumers, and mm-hmm. when, when we raise tariffs, we're not uh, we're not raising tariffs on China, China because China's not paying them. We're, we're raising uh, taxes on the Americans who who buy stuff. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Anya Jabor, Regents Professor of History at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. And then thinking of tariffs and taxes and, 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 and these trade conflicts, I can't help but think of, you know, we had Jim Shido in a while back, and he was talking about how you know, China making decisions to put tariffs on soybeans in particular states. Like, that's a new form of election interference, if you will. Well, China has... Or manipulation the, of and some the, kind. And the reason China put those uh, tariffs in place was retaliation for tariffs that the United States sure. put in place. So yeah. it not only had the tariffs that we put in place not only have the negative impact on American consumers who are buying stuff, who then have to pay higher prices... But they're also having the negative impact of, of uh, spawning retaliatory tariffs, like mm-hmm. the ones that have been placed on American agriculture by China, which has, uh, in many uh, commodities, made American commodities uh, unable to sell any longer in China. The problem with that, in particular, is that commodities are sold by lots of different countries. Right. And so China doesn't have to buy American soybeans and American wheat and American pork and American beef. They can buy all of those things from our competitors. Mm -hmm. And while uh, the trade war has been going on, that's exactly what they've been doing. Uh, They've been buying Canadian wheat. They've been buying Brazilian soybeans. They've been buying uh, beef and pork from uh, our uh, competitors uh, in Canada and, and, uh, and from the European Union. And so uh, we've uh, you end up shooting yourself in the foot, and not just once, but twice. Right. Uh, once that, on the on the import side, and once on the export side. That was a point you made yesterday, I believe, interacting with some of the students over at the Bacchus Center, is that these bilateral types of um, conflicts, I mm-hmm. guess, are, are are much more destructive than than going with a multilateral approach, right? Well, the the. Nobody understands more than me how frustrating multilateralism is because sure, that was my yeah. job for six years was I trying to get these multilateral agreements. All those countries, and it will make you nutty. And yeah. uh, and uh, you know, quote unquote allies oftentimes are uh, you. You wonder how they ended up being called our allies because it, it doesn't feel like that. But at the end of the day, the benefit of of those types of efforts is you spread out the pain of the negotiation, and you increase the pain of, of, of resistance by your counterparts. Mm-hmm. And so right now, uh, in the U.S.-China context, for example, the, the pain of trying to get China to change its practices, and by the way, we should be trying to get China to change its practices because they, they do a lot of things that we want to change and need to change, but we're, it's American farmers who are absorbing the pain of that right now. Right. While the rest of the world is laughing. Uh, you know, uh, there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, the, the U.S.-China trade war has a winner and it's dot, 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 Australia. Mm. Because the Australians are 
exporting commodities like crazy to right, China right now. They're filling those gaps. Yeah, they're filling the gaps. And uh, the uh, the upside of all the frustration of trying to negotiate in conjunction with allies is that you make it much harder for the Chinese to divide and conquer because it, you have the Australians and the Canadians and uh, the even the Brazilians uh, as as allies in a negotiation, and it uh, you spread out the risk, and so it is it is maddeningly complex and mm-hmm. and uh, frustrating in the midst of it, but it can result in 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 an outcome that I think oftentimes is 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 much better. Right. So your service with the WTO basically finishes with the end of the Obama yep. administration. It's a political appointment yep. you were explaining before. And you go to work for Amazon. Right. Amazon Web Services. First of all, that's that's a term we hear all over the place. Yep. AWS. And it's kind of the a big part of the engine that's driven Amazon's success in the last several years. It is. What is AWS? Like what what, what so, is it? Sure. It's uh and and I will confess that before taking this job, there was a lot that that I didn't know about uh, about Amazon Web Services and the and the cloud in particular. But but basically, the the part of Amazon that people typically think of is is the website where they go to sure. buy stuff. Yeah, you go buy stuff. And uh, the it's interesting the story of where Amazon Web Services came from. When uh, Jeff Bezos was trying to invent an online bookstore mm-hmm. in the early 90s, he realized that he needed the ability to store and process massive amounts of data, and he needed to be able to do that in an environment that was highly secure, Right. because at that time in particular, people were not accustomed to shopping on the internet, and everybody was told that if you ever put your credit card on the internet that it, your financial life would be ruined forever. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And so uh, Bezos had to come up with a machine that uh, that stored and processed massive amounts of data and did it in a highly secure environment. Right. And the machine that a bunch of smart people at Amazon essentially invented was the cloud, cloud okay. uh, internet services. And having invented that machine for Amazon to use, some smart people inside of the company figured out that there might be lots of other yeah. companies Platform. that would like to use that type of, of those types of services, the, a place where they could store process data in a highly secure environment. And that really was the birth of the cloud. And what the cloud really means at the end of the day is instead of buying your own computer server, and sticking it down the hall. Uh, you instead, uh, through the internet, uh, uh, rent uh, storage and processing space from a cloud company like Amazon Web Services. You do that much better than I, I, I try to explain this to my mother pretty frequently, <laughs> right? What is the I've cloud? tried to explain it to my mother frequently too, which I, is why I hope I'm honing my story yeah, here. It's getting I'm, pretty tight. It's uh, better than mine. In fact, I might replay this portion of the podcast. For <laughs> but I'll explain why that's so significant because it, it's, on the one hand, it seems like a very um, obvious thing. But, but the reason that the cloud has become as important as it has become is yeah. before the cloud, uh, anybody who used a computer, whether it was a person or a company, a, a big company, a small company, a university, a hospital, whatever, had to try and figure out how much storage and processing capacity yeah. to buy. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that's a really hard thing to do with very much precision. 
And if you make a mistake either direction, it's really bad. If you don't buy enough capacity and say you're a company that sells uh, concert tickets, then on the day that the Rolling Stones come to town, when everybody tries to go on the internet to buy Rolling Stones tickets, it breaks you. It, yeah. it breaks your your system and your system goes down. Or there, there was a great example, a couple of uh, a horrible example in some ways because it was the Red Cross. But during one of the the hurricanes, uh, you know, uh, new, brought, news broadcasters said go donate to the Red Cross, and mm-hmm. hundreds of thousand people's responded to that call. They all tried to go on the internet at the same time, and the Red Cross's systems went down, and they they lost out on all those potential donations, some of which people didn't come back. So what, uh, what cloud computing allows you to do is ratchet your, uh, your use up and down literally by the millisecond. Mm-hmm. And so if the Rolling Stones come to town or if there's a hurricane and you're need for capacity spikes upward, yep. the capacity is sitting there. And, and it's you, sort of distributed you, across a broad right. network of users. And you pay for what you use that day. Right. And the next day, uh, if your use uh, spikes back down, then you don't pay for that. And so it's it's kind of a rent instead of buy type of thing, but the, the, the flexibility that you have in renting that space is enormous. And it turns out that that all sorts of different types of, of users, customers, really appreciate that uh, flexibility. And that's really what's helped to create cloud as being such an important industry. And so now you are, you know, you're back in, in you're working from Missoula, mm-hmm. right? So well, probably traveling a bunch to Seattle and yep. other places. Yep. Um, but one of the things you're working on is, is helping places like the university use the cloud to kind of reconceptualize how we Train do people. education, train yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have some thoughts on, on yeah. how did that partnership kind of come to be and what's Amazon's view of it? Well, one of the most exciting things that I'm working on at Amazon is, is workforce development. Right. Which is, I mean, what I just described and the fact that uh, all sorts of different types of customers and users of the Internet are seeing the benefit of the cloud is this really tangible phenomena and dynamic all over the planet. And yet, as, as much as the trend line is towards cloud in, as opposed to storing uh, information the old way in a server down the hall, as much as that trend line is spiking, uh, we're still in incredibly early days of it. Right. So I, I've heard different statistics. It's currently someplace like 12, between 12 and 18% of the data on the planet is currently in the cloud. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredibly okay. small amount. And yet what we know is for the reasons I just described, over time, that's going to continue to grow dramatically. Mm-hmm. And what we see at, at AWS is a need over the coming decades for a whole bunch more people who are skilled in cloud technology. And I think that's uh, what we've been working with the University of, of uh, Montana to do and with other uh, universities around the world is to find smart ways to train today's students to be workers who will have a skill, namely cloud services, that is gonna, we just know is going to be a central skill in the, in the decades to come. And we're talking about a wide variety of, of workers. Yeah, From absolutely. people out there, you know, connecting the fiber optic, optic cables, we yeah. can talk about that, to people, 
you know, designing systems, implementing systems yep. for, for sellers, a whole range of jobs. That's right. And, um, I mean, one of the – one. well, look, anybody, I think, in the world right now who gets a college degree in computer science or something related to engineering and, and or math and technology is going to not have a very hard time finding a job uh, because I think this digital sp- – uh, space in our global economy is going to continue to grow, as we talked about. But what, one of the things that's really interesting to me is we see the need for all sorts of uh, skilled workers who have more than high school, uh, but but not necessarily a four-year degree. Okay. And so I think uh, I think our community colleges are a a place where there's going to be a lot of really interesting opportunities in, over the next, uh, you know, over the coming decade, to get you know a year or two worth of specialized training in something like cloud, and be able to then go and apply that. Uh, and so, we did something really interesting at Missoula College uh, a week ago. We worked with uh, with Sumitomo, uh, and and the University of Montana and Missoula College, to do a two day seminar to train 30 students how to use a machine called a fusion splicer. Okay. And I like saying fusion splicer because it makes me feel smart. Yeah, it sounds like something from Star Trek. It, it is like something from Star Trek. Um, and what it is at the end of the day is the way that uh, the machine that is used to pull together fiber optic cable. Okay. And fiber optic cable is is the uh, is the copper wire of the 21st century. It's, it's what ties together the the digital world and there's digital uh there's fiber optic cable being strung all over the planet in volume right now Mm -hmm. and there's not enough people right now who know how to do it because it turns out that splicing fiber optic cable together is harder than splicing together copper wire uh which even i can do and so that's just one example on the infrastructure end right. of building that's going to be going on uh, for the foreseeable future where there is a, a big uh, deficit in the number of, of skilled people that we have to, to do that job. And it was really fun, I have to say, to see these 30 students after two days to get this certificate. And I think there's a lot of them that are going to have very interesting uh, opportunities uh, uh, soon. So when we think about that, I mean, you're laying out an example of of a technical skill that you can get training in very quickly and immediately put it to work in an area that's needed. Yet to sort of be, I mean, we're we're kind of zeroing in on this tagline tomorrow proof here at Mm -hmm. the University of Montana and trying to prepare students, graduates, et cetera, for jobs we can't even imagine. So say you prepare a student for a job like that. Mm-hmm. At some point, I mean, maybe it's an ongoing thing, but at some point you sort of figure, well, the cable will be laid and then another mm-hmm. skill will be in demand. Or you know, how do you, how do you prepare students to pivot from yep. an experience like that to another? Well, uh, I think it's a combination of things. I think, I think the specific training, uh, I, th- I view it as a, as a door opener. Okay. And yeah. uh, if you have that training, there's going to be doors open to you for uh, jobs that we know are coming that weren't open to you before. Okay. I don't believe that that'll be the only time in the life of a uh, 20-year-old today that they likely will have to find another door to open. 
And I do think that there uh, that people in the global economy today have to think in a very nimble manner about how, as they're going through their career, they're keeping their eye on the horizon and uh, thinking about what am I going to be doing in five years. Right. And if they can see five years ahead and still see that this is their same job they're in is going to be a job that's there, then great. And there there will be some jobs like that, presumably, although mm-hmm. I would imagine in you know, the, the job of laying fiber optic cable as fast as that technology changes, that that's something where people are going to have to continue to update their skills as they go along. But, uh, but look, I love one of the reasons, and this is where for me, like Western history comes together with globalization yeah. is one of the things that the, the West is famous for the American West is a, a place where people have always been reinventing themselves. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you look at, uh, at Western heroes, if you look at somebody like Jim Bridger, you know, Jim Bridger came west when he was 18 years old to be a fur trapper in 1823. And by the end of the fur trade era, he owned part of one of the big fur trading companies. But then the fur trading industry died sure. virtually overnight. And we think today sometimes that the turmoil in the economy and that the rise and fall of industries is a modern phenomena, but, but it's been going on forever. I mean, look at the Pony Express, uh, which is famous. How, you ask people how long the Pony Express lasted, and they're surprised when they find out it lasted 18 months. Yeah, pretty short time. And it died on the day that they strung the, the telegraph between East and West Coast because it was disrupted by that technology of the telegraph mm-hmm. overnight. But what did Jim Bridger do when the fur trade era was over? He had figured out that, uh, that there was going to be an immigrant trail going from uh, east to west. And in fact, he helped scout the trail that became the, uh, that became the Oregon Trail. And he built a fort on the Oregon Trail and made his living for a decade uh, or more selling goods to the immigrants who were coming along on the Oregon Trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ends up later in his career being a scout for the U.S. Army. Uh, he, he, he evolves through this whole dynamic century of the, of the 19th century in the American West and, and adapts. And that ability to be, to adapt, to change uh, is something that I think is always going to be, it's always been important and history shows that. Uh, it's always going to be important. And so I do think that there is a, a huge uh, burden and also responsibility on, on workers today uh, to think in a very uh, uh, proactive way about getting the skills that can help them uh, get the next job, but also uh, uh, looking ahead to, to how they're going to adapt. And that's, you know, it's not the 1950s anymore where uh, people had the, the ability to go work for one company for their whole career and retire with a gold watch. Sure. Uh, that's just not, the, that's not the, the world that we live in anymore. And uh, I think one of the responsibilities of both companies like Amazon, but also the government, is to, to think about how do we prepare our workers to have both the skills, but also the, the nimbleness and the adaptability that they're going to need to be successful, not just in their next job, but in the one after that. I mean, thinking about that, Michael, there's, there's a lot in there that, I, that strikes me. One is just thinking about your career and how you've been able to pivot to, to, to so many different things. Um, but also that 
perspective drawn from history, the example of Jim Bridger, it makes me think about, yes, the students need some sort of a, a skill or a hook to get in the door. I like that metaphor. But also there's there's this, we have this rich tradition of liberal arts education mm-hmm. and the humanities here. How does that, how can that sort of classical training, if you mm-hmm. will, be leveraged to create this agility that you're talking about, this this ability to adapt yep. and to see the whole board? Well, I can only speak, or I guess I, I speak from my experience, yeah. which I can say how having a liberal arts education was important for me. For me, uh, having a liberal arts education taught me uh, how to write and speak. And I think the ability to communicate is at the core of many, many jobs, especially in the 21st century economy. And learning, being a good writer, being able to express your views clearly and crisply is, is a skill that is essential in a whole number of fields and will continue to be even more important uh, in the world that we live in today. The other thing I think that having a liberal arts background teaches you is uh, nimble problem solving. Okay. And on the there are uh, success in some jobs depends on a very particular skill set. And mm-hmm. we talked about the example of you know knowing how to use the fusion splicer machine to join fiber optic cable. There are some jobs that where, where that specific skill is essential. There are other jobs, and I think there are moments between jobs where that ability to adapt and be nimble and problem solve on the fly and work with diverse groups of people is the essential skill. And I think that, that liberal, a liberal arts education teaches you that because it exposes you to a broad range of of areas of education. And I think people with that kind of nimble skill set are also going to be successful in the in the 21st century economy. And I guess, you know, we're we're, we're coming up against our our time limit here. I want to be respectful of that, but if if we as an institu- if institutions in general, maybe the Mon- University of Montana specifically, like if we, if we're going to be preparing people or helping them cultivate this agility, mm-hmm. as you say, how do we become more agile yeah. as an institution? I mean, an institution like Amazon, pretty darn agile for a giant corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, institution like a university, not so much. And some of that is by design. Mm-hmm. But how do we sort of reconceptualize what we do to meet the needs of, of not only cloud computing, but sort of the future of the economy? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a... I love that you're asking the question to somebody who works in education because I think too often institutions don't ask questions. And institutions, we talked about individuals reinventing themselves. I think institutions have to reinvent themselves as well. And one of the things I do really admire about Amazon is its ability to be nimble even as a very big uh, company. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that uh, that, uh, that Amazonians are – are taught to do all the time is is question assumptions and uh, and to learn and be curious and uh, there are incredibly robust 
debates that go on inside of Amazon all the time about controversial issues, and that's a that's viewed as being a very important part of the process. There's a there's a concept at Amazon that I that I like a lot, uh, which is a one way versus a two way door, and the idea is that uh, a lot of decisions are are two way doors, meaning you walk through the door. And if you're, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but if you're wrong, you can go back through the door. Okay. Very few decisions are one-way doors, and uh, where if you make that decision, you can never change it. And I think institutions a lot of times tend to think of, of too many yeah. decisions as being one-way doors that are actually two-way doors. And we put a lot of steps in front of those one-way, we those do. seemingly one-way doors. Yeah. And if it's, not a, if it's not a one-way door, it should give us a lot of uh, flexibility yeah. to take a chance and try something. And if it, if it doesn't work, then change it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I see an institution like a university, and I think the stereotype of an institution like a, a university is that it's quite rigid in its decision-making. And I think that the universities that are, will be most successful going forward are the ones that can, like the workers that will be, will be most successful, are the ones that can adapt and be nimble. And I think that that concept of, of thinking through very carefully what are the one-way door decisions and what are the two-way door decisions and not treating all decisions as being the same is, is one tool for, for a more nimble decision-making. Yeah, it makes me think that, you know, if we're trying to get students to be tomorrow-proof, we need to think about how where tomorrow-proof is an institution as I well. I agree completely. So, Michael, this has been fascinating. I appreciate for me you too. coming Thanks in a lot. and sharing your, your time and wisdom with us. And also for kind of bringing this unique relationship um, that you have with – well, you work there. But your relationship with Amazon to the University of Montana and this collaboration with this tech skills program is, is fabulous. I'm really excited to see what well, happens. Well, thanks. We're very excited. And uh, we don't know exactly where it's going in a good way because I think we're, we're brainstorming together. But uh, we feel – very confident that there's going to be a lot of good that comes out of it. So thanks a lot. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Amazing guy. Pay very close attention to what AWS is up to. It's affecting your life, whether you feel it or not. All right. Next week, we have our second installment of the Bryce Ward series. We'll reflect on a lot of this stuff you've heard over the last couple of weeks. Next week. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.